Are you a healthcare professional who would like to hear from experts in the field of pain care? Or maybe you are caring for a family member who is experiencing pain or health challenges and you would like more information. Perhaps you are a healthcare educator who wants to better inform your students or staff. Then you are in the right place. This is Faces of Pain Care, the show where we interview experts in the field of pain care. And now, the co-creator of the Wong Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale and the executive director of the Wong Baker Faces Foundation, Connie Baker. Hello and welcome to Faces of Pain Care. You know, the opioid abuse epidemic is a health crisis in the United States, which is a great concern to us at the Wong Baker Faces Foundation. So I'm going to be interviewing experts on this topic here on Faces of Pain Care to do as much as we can to get the word out and provide practical solutions to this very serious problem. I am so happy to introduce you to one of those experts today. Dr. Chris Johnson received his medical training at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia, graduating in 2000 and completed his residency training in emergency medicine at Hennepin County Medical Center in 2003. He has been practicing in the Twin Cities for the last 13 years and is currently part of the Alina Healthcare System. He has been involved in fighting the prescription opiate epidemic for over a decade and currently serves as chairperson for the Department of Human Services Opioid Prescribing Workgroup. In addition, he is a board member of the National Organization Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing and is a board member of the local advocacy group, the Steve Rumler Hope Foundation, whose mission is to raise awareness of the problem of chronic pain and opiate addiction. He works with the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement on the Pain Management Workgroup, which develops evidence-based guidelines for treating pain applicable to all specialties. He is also a member of the Minnesota Medical Association's Board of Trustees. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Connie. It's my pleasure to be here. Wonderful. I wondered if you could just begin by talking about the current statistics on opioid abuse in our nation and just what kind of impact it's having. Well, um, the opioid epidemic, as, as you and, and many of your listeners are aware, is, is front and center news. And um, honestly, nowhere is it more front and center than in Minnesota. I'm, Prince is dead. Um, and Senator Klobuchar uh, is one of the joint sponsors of um, legislation to try and improve uh, uh, access to treatment and, and resources for those who suffer from opioid ad uh, addiction as we try to deal with. Uh, an, ep an epidemic on a national scale. Uh, to give listeners uh, an idea, um, in 2014, there were almost 19,000 Americans who died from prescription opiates in this country. Now that is uh, about 15,000 Americans die of, of homicide every year. So we are well past the number of homicide deaths. And these are from prescriptions. This is from the healing profession that wrote these. And prescriptions are just part of the part of the problem. Um, in the last ten years, 
um, following in the footsteps of the prescription opiate problem, heroin, which is just another opiate, um, has become a national epidemic. Uh, in the last 10 years, the number of heroin overdose has increased from 2,000 to 10,000. So you combine 10,000 opiate or her uh, 10,000 heroin overdose deaths with another 19,000 um, prescription opiate deaths, and you have 30,000 dead in one year from this category of, of chemical. That's that is. I, I don't know what, what constitutes a bigger public health crisis right now, and as for the fact that this is man-made is all the more tragic. Um, where we, how we got here was um, uh, the, 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 the culture in medicine around the prescribing for pain changed radically in the last 15 years. Um, we have dramatically increased uh, the prescribing of opiates for pain. And around 1990, we had around 70 million opiate prescriptions per year, and now we're over 230 million prescriptions per year. So that has increased like 400%. Um, and you just you just follow the line up the, the slope of the curve from number of prescriptions to number of deaths, and it's almost one-to-one. -one. Mm. So that's where we are. Dramatically increased prescribing, which has a, has a result of dramatically increased deaths from prescription opioids and has fueled the heroin epi epidemic. So that's where we are um, in about three minutes. Wow, wow, that is devastating. And I think people need to be aware of those numbers to be able to realize the, the magnitude of the problem. Um, how does that, how does our use of opioids, um, how is it different in other countries? How would you compare what we are doing in the United States to other countries? Or really where, where the United States was before. Um, Mm. Uh, uh, where we were in the you know 80s and early 90s is opiates were used primarily for um, for acute injuries and for patients with pain from terminal cancer, and even then there there were unintended deaths. Uh, back in like 1990, there were still 4,000 Americans who died of accidental prescription overdose. Mm. Um, so it was not like we knew these medicines had no possible risk they did but that is about where we were and if you if you compare the rate of prescription overdose death per population that's where the rest of the world is right now they do not they they, they use opiates for basically what we used to acute injuries and terminal cancer pain and some others indications for say like sickle disease things like that um and sickle cell anemia is a is a is a is a, is a, is a chronic disease but with recurring acute pain from acute injury, and that's where other countries are right now. And they, they're, they still have deaths, accidental deaths, but basically at the same rate that we used to. So what happened is we changed our prescribing culture. Yeah, and so what led to that um, that culture change? Do you think what what led to doctors prescribing more meds? Did was there a sense that that they were safe, that there wasn't going to be addiction, or? Um, what changed in the last 15 years was the result of a deliberate campaign. Um, it, the, the, the drive to use more opiate pain medicines honestly came from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, it, it is not a coincidence that it coincides with the introduction of OxyContin onto the market, which is um, oxycodone as a continuous release formula, uh, which is made by Purdue Pharma. Um, and they did what drug companies often do when they're trying to advocate for their product, which is they recruit and pay experts in the field. These are called key opinion leaders or key thought leaders. And so they approached and um, 
recruited these experts in the field of pain medicine who have done good work in their career become their advocates that these to, to, to spread the message that these medicines are safe for other types of chronic pain and that their risks were greatly exaggerated to what we thought they were. And they misled people in terms of what the actual science said um, and promoted them for use in pain that you know we typically hadn't. Say like backaches. Backaches happen all the time. You can't almost can't go a year without a backache. Um, joint pain happens on an ongoing basis. Things from like arthritis. So they started pushing the use of opiates as safe for chronic joint pain, chronic back pain, chronic headaches, those types of conditions that were typically not appropriate for opioids. And that is what changed in the last 15 years. They, they, they quoted studies that said, oh, they weren't all that dangerous. And experts said, oh, don't be scared. You, you, know, you know, we're all afraid of opioids. Don't be so afraid of opioids. You can prescribe liberally. The fact that the person has pain means they're not going to get addicted, which is nonsense. Um, yeah, we were, we were actually told that it was less than 1% would be addicted. Right. Do you know where that came from? <laughs> Go ahead and tell us. All right. The, the less than 1% addiction came from a study in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine. Um, it was from 1980. It was a study called Porter and Jick. And the thing is, it wasn't actually a study. It was a letter to the editor. It was five sentences long. And all, the, all they did was they looked at about uh, you know, 30,000 patients who were admitted in this, uh, I forget exactly what time frame, and they were admitted. So these are hospital patients. And they found about 12,000 of these admitted hospital patients received a dose of an opiate while they were admitted for their injury. And then when they were discharged, very few of them became you know, addicted to opiates, so like less than 1%. Now, what you need to know about that is they were just following hospital patients with an acute injury, who received maybe one or two doses of an opiate and then went home after their acute injury had resolved or stabilized. The, the key violation here was they weren't studying chronic pain patients who are going to be on chronic opiates indefinitely. And that is, where they, that is where I think a breach of ethics in terms of the science was made. If you're going to make a recommendation for a certain population, you study that population and you make that intervention and then you follow up. So what should have happened is Okay, so we've got a bunch of back pain patients. Let's put them on opiates and follow them for about the next two to five years and see how many just come off of them or have to remain on them and see what the complication rate is. But they never did that. Mm. It was just acutely hospitalized patient who received one or two doses of opiates, and they used that to get the less than 1%. Mm. That would be the equivalent of if, if, if you could um, – Say you were in a say you were in some say in the hospital you received five cigarettes, mm -hmm. and you weren't allowed cigarettes afterwards, or you had to get them from a prescription, and you sent a you sent them home, and very few people became addicted to tobacco. Could you conclude tobacco was not addictive? No. In other words, you have to expose the uh, patients for more than just one or two doses to see if they're going to become addicted, and you can't conclude anything about using medicines chronically from that. Mm. Well said. Did I? So, yeah. so that, that, is, that is where the, the science got fudged a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is the great tragedy of this is you, 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 they didn't study a population for any length of time. Uh, I think the longest study might have been three months. But, I mean, is someone's arthritis going to go away in three months no. and they can stop? No, no. Arth their arthritis is forever. So, right. 
if you if you want to determine if a medicine is safe for use in the long term, you study this population and you do it for years and see. Right, right. And so we're seeing the impact of that now, and that's pretty scary. So you've been in the emergency department through your career, and I'm just. I know that sometimes healthcare professionals are suspicious of complaints of pain when they go in, when they're working in the emergency room, concerning that people are just coming in wanting narcotics. How do you balance the compassion that you have for people that are in pain with concerns that people are just seeking drugs? Well, I, what I would say is, um, and I hear this far too often in, in, my, in my profession that um, we need to distinguish legitimate from illegitimate pain. Um, that, that, is, that is an important, I mean, pain is fundamentally a subjective and emotional uh, uh, process. So how can you determine whether someone's feelings of pain are legitimate or not? You can't, and, and we, don't, we don't try to do that for any other uh, condition, and we shouldn't do it for pain. You know, we should assume every person's pain is legitimate, but whether legitimate pain is, a, is best treated by opioids is a different matter. Patient's pain from acute injury is very appropriate for opioids. An acute kidney stone, a angulated fracture, acute pancreatitis, um, a bad skin infection or cellulitis. These are all appropriate for a patient's pain, and you treat them aggressively with everything, not just antibiotics, but also with opiates. But if a patient's pain is due to recurring back pain, bulging discs, which are just sort of like arthritis for the back, th then yes, their pain is legitimate. Yes, they may be suffering, but opiates aren't the answer for that. Mm -hmm. And so you don't try to determine legitimate versus illegitimate. Look at the type of injury it is, what type of pain it is, to see whether opiates are appropriate or not. That's, that's good. And so then you can offer them other uh, options for pain relief or, or maybe even other methods of pain relief other than opioids. Exactly. You, you offer th things like um, uh, acupuncture has data that it helps, um, physical therapy, behavioral therapy. All of, these, all of these modalities are appropriate for those more chronic types of pain. In fact, um, there, there's a robust research about chronic pain, and the techniques that work the best are the ones that recruit the patient to take agency over their life and their pain again. Um, instead of relying on an implantable device or a medication, in other words, for the patient to kind of look to the healthcare industry and say, fix me. Right. For the, for the healthcare industry, like, here's how we're going to put you back in charge of your experience with weight loss, with things you can do on your own. That is what helps patients with chronic pain get better. Yeah. Looking at a, you know, put a, a stimulator here. I'll, I'll nip this little uh, bulging disc there. Those don't have good data. They work long-term. Uh-huh. And so... All, pay, all pain is legitimate, and no pain is illegitimate, but that doesn't answer the question of, is this pain therefore right for opioids? Right. That's, that's the question to ask. That's good. A patient um, satisfaction survey is sent to patients following their hospital stay just to get their perspective on how their care was. And pain management is a part of those core questions in the survey, or at least it has been in the past. Um, do you think that there is a component of 
the that survey having an impact on how physicians treat pain in hospitals? Well, I what I would say is I would say yes. I would also say that, um, but the drive to create a favorable or consoling customer experience even predates these questionnaires. Okay. Um, that even before, like I think the HCAPs became mandatory, it was like 2007 or 2008. Um, but even prior to that, um, healthcare has been very much cognizant of the fact that it's a customer business and they want, healthcare systems want to keep their patients. They don't want their patients going somewhere else. So they keep very close track of patient complaints and, and any physician um, is aware that they're told every year how many complaints they got. And when you add the satisfaction surveys, which we are given our scores on a, on a monthly or quarterly basis, how our satisfaction scores are, there are enormous incentives in the healthcare industry to do whatever it takes to get a favorable customer rating. Mm. And if a patient is in pain, these satisfaction surveys don't, they don't have the resolution to determine, well, was it a chronic pain patient or was it an acutely injured patient? They just say pain. So you're incentivized to use whatever means you can to get that score down, or even before the scores were coming, or before the satisfaction surveys were, make the patient happy so they don't leave and go somewhere else and don't write a letter of complaint. Because patients who aren't happy also do other things. Even if they don't have a satisfaction survey, they'll complain to your company and say, I don't want to pay all this bill. And then to collect, then you have to deal with a bill collector. And, if you, yeah, and then companies have to pay the bill collector. So even with the, the very action of the typical healthcare transaction, Keep the customer happy. Keeping the customer happy just reduces the – make sure that you maximize your revenue because then you don't have to argue over the bill. You don't have to pay a bill collector. Or with now with the satisfaction surveys, we, we know that part of, the, part of our compensation as a hospital system is tied to our performance on that. So with the satisfaction surveys especially, but even before then, there was enormous incentive to just give a favorable customer experience. The problem is the customers – the customer experience is very short-term. What makes a customer status happy in the, is typically what, what happened in that, that hour or that 20 minutes. They don't fill out their satisfaction survey five years later and say, like, boy, you know, now I've got this terrible opiate problem. Can I go back and change my evaluation from that previous <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, visit, okay? Right. It, it, it has, it just like everything else in the economy, it's got a quarterly report. It doesn't think five years ahead of time. What's going what's gonna to make a good, the good best business sense now? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have – the proper time horizon, in my opinion, we have to look, and that's what we're supposed to be doing as physicians. Is I know this might, this might get your pain number down to the minimal possible right now, but this is not going to be in your long-term best interest. And we're supposed to be able to act on that. But these incentives of of the the business side of medicine are often contrary to that. Mm. Wow. No, that's that's really important. Thank you for sharing that part. Um, so what do you see is the need to be, what do we need to be doing now to turn the trajectory of opioid abuse around? Well, if you, if you um, were to put on a graph and, and trace opioid prescriptions with this, the uh, rates of addiction treatment and the rates of opioid death, the slope of the curve is almost identical. Hmm. We have to decrease prescribing. Mm -hmm. And... We need to, but that's a different question from pain management. Again, all pain needs to be managed. The question is, are opiates the answer? 
And I don't say change anything about acute injury, fracture, this or that. You treat it aggressively, but then you have an endpoint. You stop. Mm-hmm. You, have an, you have an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. For patients with terminal cancer or these other processes that, you know, aren't going to be fixed, you know, honestly, for terminal cancer and these other things, addiction becomes secondary to the health outcome you worry about in terms of, like, their life. Mm. So we need to turn back the prescribing, and that means we stop writing for opiate medicines for these chronic conditions, back pain, joint pain, chronic headaches. If we were to start doing that, we would start making real headway. It is not enough to just offer improved access to treatment because then they're already addicted. Um, we want to prevent we want to prevent addiction. We want right. to prevent that. So there's there's two prongs to this problem. One is we give we give compassionate treatment for those in chronic pain and compassionate treatment for those in addiction. The second prong is let's stop creating these types of patients who become opiate dependent. And that means changing the culture prescribing to not using it for these, again, uh, using opiates, which are like oral versions of heroin for chronic pain conditions, back pain, joint pain. So it's not enough to just offer treatment because, you know, those people are already addicted. We want to prevent addiction. Um, they deserve it and we should do that, but we need to change the prescribing culture. And I, I want to see more from our, our leaders and from our, you know, our, uh, from our surgeon general than just, it's not enough to just say, oh, these medicines are dangerous. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's not enough to just warn people, oh, it's dangerous. Because I can tell you how many, I can't tell you how many times I warn patients and I'm like, yeah, 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 I get it. I get it. It's, it's dangerous. Warnings don't help. We need to just say, look, it's, we need to be able to tell or help physicians say, it's me- these medicines are not appropriate for these conditions. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And that they don't have to, and those physicians will, will not feel like their position might be threatened because their satisfaction scores or their customer, their, 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 their um, because what if that might have on their business model of their clinic, uh, mm-hmm. the consequence. We need to protect those physicians from that. And so we have to increase the public awareness. Uh, and, and the understanding of what these medications really, how they should be used. Right. The public, no one, no one in the public debates that heroin is dangerous. No. Um, but the public has a, ha, a, 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 thinks that, well, hydrocodone is safe, whereas heroin is not. I mean, they, how could they be any different? Heroin is this gritty, dark stuff. It's in a spoon and you inject it. Um, and hydrocodone tablets, they're, they're white and they're pure as a, a snowfall or, an, or a wedding dress. And they're like antibiotics. How could they be? And they come from a doctor. How could they be dangerous? The, if you look at the molecular structure of hydrocodone, it is almost identical to the molecular structure of heroin. And heroin is just another opiate. It is diacetylmorphine. It's used all the time in the United Kingdom for acute injuries. If your listeners or you happen to be in London and a kidney stone happened, mm-hmm. You would go to perhaps their emergency department there, um, and they might give you two milligrams of diamorph, which is two milligrams of heroin. And you would be grateful for the relief because there's nothing special about heroin. It's just culturally in, the, in our country, it has been used by sort of, you know, jazz musicians and minorities and it's inner city and there's all for intoxication. And therefore, it's a very different chemical and opioid pain medicines are, are not are, the, are sort of different altogether. And that is not true. Hmm. The only thing that matters with these medicines is what your brain receptor sees. And your brain receptors, just look at the, at the molecular structure, and oxycodone, hydrocodone, heroin, 
morphine. They are all practically identical. They all bind the same receptor and mm-hmm. they all have the same risks, okay? But that means they all have their uses. I mean, again, I'm not saying that these medicines should be getting rid of. If I broke my ankle, broke my wrist, I would want something for the right. pain. Right. But we need to understand them as risky medicines and not use them long-term because there's no, there's no way to predict who long-term is going to be able to do it safely or not. That's right. Excellent. Wow. So I would encourage your listeners when, when you, when you, when you, if, to stop making this big distinction between heroin and prescription opioids. Look at them always with, you know, they're risky. Right. And they shouldn't be used for more than days, a week. Mm-hmm. You know, taking them for a month is you know, if you take these opiate medicines for as much as one month, that is plenty of time to alter your brain's, your brain's chemistry. Right. Yeah. Well, I am just so grateful for the, um, the work that you're doing in, in the committees and getting the word out and, and writing articles. In fact, I've read a couple of articles that you've written that I just think are excellent. So, and you've given me permission to include those on uh, the episode page on our web- website under Faces of Pain Care. So, People can download those too. I, we've got to get the word out. We've got to get the word out to the healthcare professionals, and we've got to get the world out to um, to the public, so that they understand, have a better understanding of what we're dealing with. Are, is there anything else that you'd like to add on this topic? I would. Um, part part of this this problem that we're, that we're seeing with the opioid is is a reflection of. Um, almost a larger problem in the medical industry itself. And that is what we incentivize um, in terms of how, how, we, how we offer healthcare and how we practice. For example, for chronic pain, we know that helping improve patients you know, with physical therapy, behavioral therapy, psychological therapy, social worker, help them with their employment situation, um, those take time. They aren't procedures. And so they're not paid well. Mm-hmm. And so clinics don't invest in them. Whereas they'll invest in, in putting in a stimulator in your back. You know, they'll, you know, and, and if it's something that's not well compensated, they tell the physician, all right, that's good. That's good. Get them out of there in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can get the next visit that we can bill for. Um, what can a doctor do in 15 minutes uh, or even 30? Yeah. All, all they can basically have time to do is that, or what do you want? Mm-hmm. And, and do that. And so that often terms like what's quick, a pill is quick. So the, the, the opiate epidemic, in my view, raises very serious questions about what are we really trying to do in the healthcare industry? Are we focused on the patient or are we focused on ourselves and what is most profitable uh, in our current business model? And I would, I would want to change the healthcare system, period, to incentivize spending time with the patient. Mm. Um, you know, you, they, we talk about creating a great experience, make them feel like they're special, but for heaven's sake, move faster. Exactly. <laughs> the, Plus, you have to fill uh, out uh, all that. You have to answer all these questions and click off so many boxes on your um, electronic health record. And, uh, you know, it's hard to even have a face-to-face conversation. And that's, and that's why we need to engage all the stakeholders in healthcare because the individual physician can't change that structure. They're not, they don't have the power to, like, well, I'm just going to practice how I practice, and, and I'm going to take an hour. They're, they're not going to they're 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 not going to survive in their clinic long like that. So we need to, we need to we need to make doing pro- appropriate care an economically viable option. And that's why we get that's why you need political leaders. You need, that's why you need 
Centers for Medicare, Medicaid to change their payment structures, to incentivize um, uh, those techniques that we know are safer, that are more beneficial in the long term, and de-emphasize the, the procedures and the, and the pills, which we've been doing up till now, which you know just aren't very effective or even dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so, again, this raises larger issues in the healthcare uh, industry in general. Um, and I think it's, I'm, in my opinion, it's time for a change. I agree. So listeners, if you're a part of, if you can be a part of making that change, we, we just encourage people to take action. Um, we've, we've all got to work together for this, I think. Um, well, thank you again, Dr. Chris Johnson. Um, this has been a fantastic interview and I could really talk to you for a long time. Um, listeners, if you want to contact Dr. Johnson, you're welcome to email me or you can contact the Steve Rumler Hope Foundation. Uh, that's their uh, website is the Steve Rumler Hope Foundation.org. And we'll have a link to that on our episode page as well. And listeners, we would love to hear from you. Please visit our website at wongbakerfaces.org or email us at wongbakerfaces at gmail.com. Thanks again, Chris, for being here. It's been a pleasure to my talk pleasure. to you. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for joining us today. And thank you for making a positive difference in someone's life. This has been another great episode of Faces of Pain Care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss any of the new episodes. And be sure you check our previous shows for more information that will keep you informed 